I'm just really caught up in the image of this bizarre, horny writer's retreat that's happening in the middle of the most <laughs> apocalyptic year. <laughs> and, and Lord Byron having to give them all like a writing assignment so they would like get their minds off of their like weird psychosexual drama they're creating in this house. It's hilarious. Um, I'm it's obviously really going to the, to the wrong writer retreats. It's um, not <laughs> been my experience, but I could, I could see the dynamic. Welcome, friends, to episode 233 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm writer Luke Elliott. And I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And this week we discuss Mary Shelley's 1818 novel, Frankenstein or the Modern Prometheus. And joining us this week in the laboratory is Rachel K. Jones. Rachel is a World Fantasy Award nominee and Tiptree Award honoree whose fiction has appeared in dozens of venues worldwide, including multiple Year's Best anthologies, Lightspeed Magazine, Beneath Ceaseless Skies, Strange Horizons, and all four Escape Artists podcasts. Welcome to the show, Rachel. Hey, thanks. It's great to be here. Thanks for joining us. I'm so glad we were able to have you on for this project. We've been talking about uh, you joining the show as a guest for a little while now, I think uh, at least a year or more. And uh, this one is is ultimately the project we decided on. You said you love this project, you love this book, um, and I we love to have people on who are passionate about the things we cover. So, tell us a little bit about why Frankenstein was important to you to talk about. This is one of those books I read back in high school, maybe voluntarily, I think. Um, and I remember being floored even back then, like as a teenager, with like how good it was, so that it was really impressively readable. And that was before I learned that it was also like the foundational novel that kicked off like two entire genres, like science fiction and horror. Um, and I think that why I was excited to revisit it is just because of the fact that um, I was curious if it would hold up to how I remembered it. And I've just been really like pleasantly surprised that it does hold up so well. And it's it's so incredibly different from what we think of when we hear the word Frankenstein. Like it really subverts your expectations and like takes you to different places and also as someone who's also a scientist and really interested in science, um, I am really impressed with it as a novel that's um, about science that was contemporary in its time. So even to us, like, you know, when you read it, it's a little, a little bit bogus now. But like, you know, at the time, like she was writing about cutting edge science, um, you know, during an era when people were first learning about anatomy and what was actually inside the human body and like some really, you know, actual structured sort of way. The human body and like the weirdness of the human body is something that comes up a whole lot in my work. Like I really love writing just gross, disgusting body horror stories or like really weird <laughs> ones about like brains and jars. And for me, like the um, experience of studying anatomy um, back when I was in graduate school was really foundational to what I like to do in my science fiction. And I think that Mary Shelley and I kind of are kindred spirits in that way that she's someone that I know found her imagination really fired by that you're know, living in the era and that, you know, in, in a sense, then we kind of get to be her spiritual successor in the creative world of like that um, legacy of finding inspiration and, you know, the, the process of discovery. 
So you mentioned you read it in high school. I think that's when I read it too. I believe it was assigned for me. <laughs> um, I wasn't seeking out a lot of like classics at the time. I was reading Dragonlance and stuff like that. <laughs> um, but I remember liking this book and being like, wow, this is every now and then I would read a classic novel and really connect with it and actually enjoy reading it. Um, it's still kind of challenging for someone who was probably like 14 or 15 when I was trying to read this book. And I'm like, wow, this is pretty advanced. Um, but I remember liking it. Um, I do think a lot of it went over my head and revisiting it as an adult. I think that the experience was definitely different for me. I feel like I got more out of it. I got different things out of it as someone who now writes and, and, and thinks about things creatively. And, um, it's, it's really an amazing novel. And like you said, foundational for so many things that we all know and love today, um, in multiple genres, really just an incredible novel. And uh, one that has so much that we can talk about that I know this is going to be a a jam-packed episode. Uh, before we get into our general thoughts, James, what is your experience with Frankenstein? I remember that we read it in high school. Didn't remember a lot about it. it very similar to what you were saying, Luke. Much too young when I read it. Was assigned it in school. So that's got its own sort of thing where I wanted to sort of read my own stuff. And I wasn't interested in reading what I was being assigned. But... This time, just reading it, I, I was, I'm just completely blown away. And like, I, I will talk more about why, but this might be one of my favorite books we've ever read on the podcast. Um, wow. Genuinely that. And it's, it's this beautiful look at like, what it means to be alive. And, and then like, there's this almost like who goes there, the thing from another world sort of element to this Arctic circle, like oh, gotcha. setting <laughs> that we get at the beginning and all these weird elements that I was like, where is this going? I don't remember this at all in this Frankenstein story. <laughs> And uh, so it just it took me on a really fun journey. And, and I, I just can't believe I didn't engage with it more because I, I remember liking it because it was sort of genre, but it was too literary. And I appreciate it so much more having read a lot more literary stuff going into this now. I'm like, oh, my God, what an amazing blend of both worlds in such a cool way. So, Rachel, you were saying that this novel uh, influences your work. Um, and, and even as a writer, but also as what you do for your day job. And can, can you talk at all about how um, the science behind it and the, the, the genre behind it, like, how does that influence you? Um, oh, my gosh. I have so much to say about this. <laughs> um, do Can I go on a little aside about science history and the history of discovery that overlaps with this novel? Please do. I'm just going to geek for a minute. So first of all, my background is that um, I'm a speech language pathologist, which means um, I um, like uh, diagnose and treat communication disorders. But the cool thing about that is that part of my background is that we have some of the same training that you get for like pre-med or for nursing programs. And so back when I was in graduate school, I got to do like human dissections and like learning about anatomy firsthand with the human body. And there's a really, really interesting history around like when that became a thing, like to actually study the human body directly and actually cut open a dead body to like learn about anatomy, which is like part of what this book is about, the era that became a thing. And it was interesting that right before we started recording, I was looking up um, one of my favorite stories from science history that's um, about a man named Ignat Simmelweis. I don't know if you've heard of him before. Um, I don't think he so. is the guy no. who invented hand washing. He overlapped with Mary Shelley's lifetime, but she actually wrote this novel before um, this man showed up at the scene. And he has a really, really sad history because he invented hand washing in an era before germ theory existed. And so basically like, he was a man who worked at a, I think he headed a hospital. It was like a maternity hospital and it was next door to another hospital where the midwives were doing deliveries. And at his hospital, it was the gentleman 
who were delivering babies. Um, and their hospital had a very, very, very high death rate um, for the mothers. Um, whereas the midwives were doing just fine and they had fewer deaths. And the reason for this that they found out like way later in science history was because the gentlemen in between their delivering babies would kill time by going into the morgue and doing dissections on the bodies there. Um, because that's how you were expected to learn more about um, the body and about become a better doctor. But the problem was that they didn't understand germ theory and they didn't wash their hands in between doing dissections and going to deliver the babies. And so you can kind of imagine like now, I mean, it's, it's horrifying to think about now about like, the consequences of that. And so this man you know, developed this theory and he had this, this crazy nutty idea at the time where he's like, there's like corpse molecules poll you know, pollinating from the corpses into the mothers. And everyone thought he was a raving lunatic. But because he was in charge of the hospital, he made it all the gentlemen wash their hands and lie. And I'm using the word gentlemen here deliberately, not like um, just to say the men, like these were men of like a high stature and high class. And so they resented the idea that gentlemen could have dirty hands and like that, you know, mm. what an insulting thing. Like maybe there's a parallel, like maybe in our COVID times of being asked to wear a mask that there's just like almost, it's almost insulting to some people to uh, this idea that you could be cure a carrier of disease. Mm -hmm. um, whereas the midwives didn't, you know, weren't doing dissections. And so they weren't having a problem at all in their hospital, even though they were, allegedly less trained and less like good doctors than the men were. Um, so anyway, to me, it's really interesting to think about that story to me that highlights the era of like science in which Mary Shelley's writing this book that like, you know, Victor is a gentleman scientist who's doing dissections to learn more about anatomy. But he's, you know, I think it's really fun to go in this novel and know that he's never washing his hands. Like, let's just think about that for a minute. <laughs> like, you know, he discovers a secret to life and maybe it's not washing your hands, like <laughs> life of a sort anyway. Um, <laughs> So like in my own work, like, so I remember, um, so I have done human dissections before as part of my, um, the training, my education, um, not a whole lot. Cause like, you know, when you're, unless you're going full on doctor route, like they don't let you, they don't give them to you fresh to be, you know, like, I don't want to be too explicit, but like, um, <laughs> I remember it as one of the most, um, like I, I, I expected going into the experience that I was going to be horrified by like the experience of like working with like a dead human body. But, and I remember like up until the moment I walked into the room, I kind of had this expectation of like almost like the zombie images and that kind of stuff. But like, I found the experience like just profoundly moving. Like I remember going in there, you know, working with these cadavers, like learning how to like identify like the different structures inside the human body and like, find, you know, and real being overcome with the, um, the fact that these were people who had chosen to give their bodies is that their last, the only like thing that you have left when you leave the world is your body. Like, and that they had chosen to leave their bodies for people to learn directly because there's some things that you just can't learn. Like, especially when you're, you know, part of your job is going to involve like directly touching parts of people's bodies that never get touched. Like, um, like it's so, 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 so important to have that background for like a lot of different jobs. And like, um, and you know, this kind of goes back to the era that Mary Shelley is writing in about this era where for the first time it's becoming a thing to touch the human, you know, touch the inside, like, touch someone's lungs for science, like, um, which is really, 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 really intimate and like both kind of horrifying, but also like, I can see why it's so compelling to him as a scientist in the book that like, you know, there is something profoundly moving and profoundly fascinating about being able to like see human bodies in this sort of way. And so like in my own work, it's something that, oh my gosh, I explore in so many of my stories. Like, I really love you know, the science of anatomy and the science of like the way that you know, the, the parts of the body all work together and just the fact that it shouldn't work. <laughs> like, you know, when you think about it, you're kind of like, why, why does this system work? It's bonkers. Um, like, how does all this stuff just work together? And why are we not all just dead all the time? And yet somehow, you know, 
there's quite a few of us on the earth and we all kind of shamble along. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's kind of like maybe where I come from when I'm looking at this. Um, the story of Ignat Semmelweis is so interesting. Like go read the, the Wikipedia article sometime if you want like a wild ride, but also really sad because they all thought he was nuts. So the end of the story for him is that they eventually put him in a sane asylum wow. because they thought he was so crazy and all the gentlemen stopped washing their hands at the hospital and the death rates went back up and no one cared for like, several decades until Louis Pasteur came and invented like, you know, germ theory. So wow. that's kind of interesting. <laughs> Amazing. Wow. Yeah. Can you suggest for our listeners a, one of your stories or, or any of your works that w is like a good example of what you're talking about? Uh, yeah. Um, I'll recommend two because they're, they're very different tones and depending on what you, what you prefer. Um, there's a one story I wrote called Charlotte Incorporated that was first published in Lightspeed Magazine. Um, and that one's about um, upwardly mobile brains in jars who are dreaming of the bodies they can one day build. And so it's all about like this obsessive anatomy geek who's like designing exactly which vestigial organ she wants in her body and like which, you know, what the muscle setup's <laughs> going to be. And exactly. So it's kind of like to me, very much like a more of a celebration of like, even though bodies are kind of gross and horrifying, like how that can be beautiful too. Um, if you want more of a sick and twisted take on the topic, um, I wrote another story called the greatest one-star restaurant in the, in the whole quadrant, which is about um, a cannibal cyborg food truck that's loose in space where the cyborgs are like, they don't quite understand what our stigma is about different kinds of meat. So they just start cutting off bits of their own meat and serving them to the humans in their food truck. And um, <laughs> it's horrible, but a lot of fun. So yeah, if you're that kind of person, it's a wild ride. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I don't know if you, if you have read about Mary Shelley's life much, but your, what you are talking about actually has a really interesting intersection with her own life because her mother was Mary Wallenstonecraft, uh, who, uh, she died in childbirth for Mary Shelley because her doctor, according to what people say now, didn't wash his hands wow. and she got an infection, uh, during, during giving birth to her. So what you're talking about directly influenced Mary Shelley's life. That's incredible. Wow. Um, but let's just talk general thoughts um, about the novel, reading it this time. Um, how did you feel reading this thing? Kind of alluded to it already, but just I, I was blown away just by how engaging the book was. It had that sort of liter literary poetic flair to it for much of the prose. And yet I wasn't in any way hampered or bogged down by it. I loved it. Like I talked about a little bit about the device that some of the devices, like the storytelling devices, we're getting, you know, we're getting the narrative as letters and then we're switching to someone's viewpoint, sort of telling a story to someone else, like an oral story. Uh, I just thought that those that was such a fun way to like segment out the story and, and it kept it really engaging for me. And then that middle section with the monster sort of exploring what it means to be alive and and quickly picking up on so like society and history and l like history of literature was really cool too like getting to see references to other works uh within the story i i was just so taken by it and and so much of it because the end sort of bookends the beginning i almost restarted and just was like let me just go back through <laughs> it again because there's this sort of mystery element getting these letters home from this arctic journey i was like what does this have to do with with frankenstein and and the monster 
And so overall, I just I found it to be really fun and fresh. And it's it's an older novel. And yet it didn't feel like it at all. And I could totally yeah. see the influence for so much going forward. And a lot of what what I think about is the sort of Halloween Frankenstein that you're that you think of when you hear the name. So it was really cool to get this source story mm-hmm. in this in this way. So if people don't know, like, obviously, this is very different from the sort of horror monster version that we are familiar with. Um, uh, in the sense that this version of the creature is so eloquent and thinking and, and, and really deeply philosophical. And, um, I think we immediately feel so much empathy for, um, so I, that of course struck me. I was kind of expecting that the thing that I didn't expect, um, but immediately was like my biggest takeaway was just how much I hated Victor like yes. I just wanted yeah. to shake him. Like he he is such a little like emo baby. He's terrible. Like he whines <laughs> constantly about everything and like every time he meets somebody who's like going through something her- ter- terrible, he's like and what they were going through was not even a fraction of what I was experiencing in this moment. Like it's all about him. He's so selfish. Um maddening and, and and I kept yeah, picturing him as just this little emo kid who who like is so self-obsessed. Um I don't know. I mean, like he's he's still a good character, but man, uh, very frustrated with Victor. Uh, yeah, I, I I won't get into it too much, but yeah, definitely enjoyed my reading this time. The epistolary sections where it was written as letters, very cool. And then there are these like levels of remove we're getting because we got a guy who's listening to a story that Victor's telling him about the story that the creature told him, and so I it actually introduces some interesting ideas about like a game of telephone going on a little bit here of like, what is the true story behind all of it? And has stuff been lost in translation? Um, I don't know if she's playing with that or not, but I, I was thinking about that. And then of course there's just so much like thematic meat to the story. And like, you know, I was reading some of the different theories critics have had about it, talking about like, could this be about slavery? Could this be about um, like America at the time? And, and there was a, there was a movement within like English politics at the time that this could be referring to. I don't even know the details of it. There were, there were so many different things that like she could have been reacting to the, the philosophy of her father, who was a very famous philosopher and writer um, and how this sort of subverts a lot of his teachings and like the things that he, he said um, because she was one of these romantics yet. She was writing in a way that was sort of critical of what the other romantics were doing at the time. Um, really fascinating and 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 so deep and rich and there's so much you can really get out of it um, and and yeah I was kind of overwhelmed by that and I was just taken with like this is a science fiction story at its heart too it's about a doctor and a scientist and he creates something that he loses control of and he is terrified of what he's made and it's sort of playing God right and that story has become so essential to, I think, science fiction. And we see it come up time and time again, and it all comes back to this. Um, so really foundational and and created by a 19-year-old girl uh, who was, you know, staying with some friends on a, in, a, in a lake house. So it's pretty amazing when you think about that. And we'll get into more of the history of that. But just general thoughts uh, on reading this one, J- Rachel. I know we've we've talked a lot about it. <laughs> um uh, well, now I feel like an underachiever. I think I've got some some catching up to do with Mary Shelley. I know. <laughs> got to find found a new genre myself, I guess. Um, by the time you're 19 <laughs> years old, it's incredible. Um, yeah, I think I agree with you too. I think it's it's a brilliant book, and um, maybe what impresses me most about it is that um, when you think about a lot of novels or stories that have been around for a really long time, sometimes they can feel. 
they can unintentionally feel flat because they were the first that did the story. Yeah. Um, and we've had so many other versions that maybe did that same concept better. This doesn't really fall in that category. Like, I think that, um, you know, it's definitely a novel that um, is historical and exists in its time, but, like, that's only made it better, like, um, in terms of, like, um, this... It's it's you know, and obviously in its time it didn't feel like a historical novel, you know, um, but I think it's fantastic. I think it's it's a smart novel. I think it's an interesting one. Um, I was not bored. Um, yeah, it's got such a cool structure um, that um, makes me think of ghost stories about like how you relay stories to one another and like how that with how that plays with point of view and perspective and how like you know. Um, you know, in the the nest of stories, the very heart of the book, eventually you get the creature's um, own story, and that's different from maybe how Victor, Victor puts it forth. Yeah, Victor is a total little shit stain and <laughs> a little whiny emo brat, um, and I actually really enjoyed that about him too. Like, I mean, he's just such a flawed <laughs> protagonist. Like, he's not your yeah. typical hero at all. I honestly f- found it to be like sort of Shakespearean too. <laughs> like, in that that yeah. like there's there's those characters in Shakespeare where you're like, what is this character's problem? Just mopey or like, you know, something about that character like he he's annoying <laughs> to an extent but at the same time it's like it almost feels like fate like the whole story just feels yes. like he ran yeah. away from the monster because he was terrified of it but also it's going to serve the story you just wait like it's worth it oh yeah and like yeah and, and i definitely like think that the book doesn't let him off the hook but i love that he's one of those characters that always makes the wrong decision in many ways right um but you can but you can figure out why okay so we have lots more to get into with the actual uh plot as i'll go through it but before we do Let's take a little moment to talk about Mary Shelley, the person, because she is a pretty incredible figure in in all of literature. Um, So she was born Mary Wallenstonecraft Godwin, which was sort of almost like a hyphenated last name between Wallenstonecraft, her mother, and Godwin, her father. Um, She would later go on to become Mary Shelley, who she is now more famously known as. Um, she was born to famous parents William Godwin and Mary Wollstonecraft. Uh, her father was a political radical, and her mother was as well. Her mother was a activist feminist at the time, in which it was incredibly unpopular <laughs> to be an activist feminist. Um, her father was a uh, anarchist and a, and a political radical at a time where where that was not popular. Um, but you know he was he was well respected in certain circles, right? So she, she grows up in a household with this luminary f- figure of her father, um, but her mother, unfortunately, would pass away uh, in childbirth, which we've talked about already. Um, so she never knew her mother, um, but her father did remarry uh, a few years later to uh, a woman named Mary Jane Claremont, who would become famous for writing children's books. Um, and when she became married to her father, their family grew in number quite a bit, and she had a bunch of stepsisters and other children and they were in the house. Uh, unfortunately for Mary Jane Claremont, um, uh, Mary Shelley, I'm going to call her Mary Shelley throughout just so that we know who I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, she wasn't Mary Shelley yet, but Mary Shelley did not like her stepmother, thought she was like evil and hated her and they fought all the time. Um, by all accounts, this wasn't really uh, fair. Um, in fact, she seemed to be fine. She seemed to do a, a decent job of trying to raise her and teach her. But the problem was she was in the shadow of uh, Mary Shelley's mother, who she idolized. Um, And she sort of could never forgive her for for trying to replace her actual mother. Um, So that was the the sort of situation she grew up in. Um, She's got this well-known figure of a father. 
And so because of this, she would go to like different lectures. She was taught at home, I believe. She she became fluent in like six different languages. Um, she was extremely precocious, hyper intelligent. Um, she was expected to be able to hold her own with other intellectuals from an early age and was able to do so. Um, by all accounts, she was an incredible child. Um, and she would eventually, at, at I think age 15, meet Percy Shelley, who came to the house. Um, he had, I think it was like he had been disowned by his father and he was looking for a new father figure and he really liked her father, William Goldman. And so he came to stay with them for a while. And he was, I think, 20 at the time when he first met her. She was 15. Um, their romance wouldn't start until about a year later. And they would do things like meet up at her mother's gravestone and read her writings to each other. Um, you know, that kind of like deeply romantic uh, uh, stuff that we think about for those er for that era. Um, and he he's an interesting figure, too. I didn't do a ton of research into him. I know that he was a proponent of free love. And he was uh, he was married at the time this was all going on uh, to another woman, Harriet. But he like he what that's how he like he didn't believe in sort of monogamy. He, he was not into that. Um, and and because of that, Mary Shelley also kind of was like that. She was like she she ostensibly believed in this sort of free love because that's what he he wanted. But it seems like she never really was in love with anyone but him. Um, there was a brief affair that he seemed to encourage between her and another man, but it seems like she wasn't really that into it. And it was more because he was having an affair with someone else. And it wanted, I think it was like to be equal. He, he wanted her to be able to do that. I don't know. It's like, there's so much that like, I'm only reading what is like widely accepted history. If you start thinking about what was probably actually going on behind the scenes, everybody was probably fucking everybody back in, in these groups. That, that seems to be the, the, the consensus. So Anyway, she's having this romance with with Percy. Her father does not like this because he's married to someone else. And they try and come forward with this romance, and he's not having any of it. He forbids her to see him anymore. So what does she do? Her and her stepsister jump in a carriage and leave home with Percy at age 16 to go throughout all of Europe um, on this adventure. Um, she comes back home, uh, I think like six weeks later, and she's pregnant. And uh, that is not something that her father's happy about. <laughs> so there's lots of uh, fighting. She's sort of disowned, kind of. Um, and because of that, her and Percy have to try and, like, go it alone. Um, so they end up going to stay eventually with his friend, Lord Byron, uh, in Lake Geneva. So they go to Lake Geneva to stay with Lord Byron. I believe this is in 1816 which is known as the year without summer. So this is a like actually serious event that happened where a volcano erupted and changed global climates for a year because of the ash cloud. Because of that, when they say this was a year without summer, they're like legitimately, there were like freezes that were happening. Like, rivers were freezing over. There wasn't, um, this affected like uh, food production. So there was a massive famine that followed this. Um, it was really bad, but for her and her sort of like, she's still kind of upper echelon wealth, wealthy. What this mainly meant is that her and her friends who were staying with Lord Byron had a rainy summer where they couldn't go out and about and like do all the fun stuff they wanted to do. And so instead they had to stay in his house. Okay. So he has a personal physician who wants to sleep with her 
stepsister who's there. Her stepsister wants to sleep with Lord Byron. Her and Percy are together. Uh, Lord Byron doesn't want any of this to happen, it seemed like. I don't know. I couldn't follow all of it, but they're all basically wanting to sleep with each other, it seems like. Um, and it's, it, not only is it incredibly fraught in like a, in like a sexual way, but also like, there's a lot of anger. Like they were like wanting to kill each other over this stuff. There's a lot of jealousy. Um, so it's very emotionally fraught, right? They're all teenagers. It seems like, um, at the, at the time she's, I guess, 19. Um, and, oh, I, I forgot to say, uh, tragically her, her child died, um, at 11 days old. So she, her life is already marred by a tragedy there, and on, and there would be a lot more tragedy to come. Her, she had a very tragic life. So they're they're all trapped inside, and Lord Byron comes up with this idea. He says, "We're all going to try and write a ghost story," and he tasks everybody there. He says, "Everybody, go write a ghost story." Um, bunch of writers sitting around, bunch of poets, right? And so they're like, "Okay." Um, and people go off and they start writing. Um, apparently, his physician wrote a very very early vampire story which is like credited as one of the earliest vampire stories. It's pretty amazing. Um, but uh, I think like Percy had trouble writing prose because he's much more of a poet. I, I, but different writers produce different things that, that have gone on to be published, I believe. However, Mary Shelley was struggling. She struggled for days. She said, I can't, my muse is gone. It's absent. I can't think of anything to write for this, sh- for this ghost story. But then she was remembering a conversation she listened to between Percy Shelley and Lord Byron that was about galvanism, which you were talking about was this like early idea that you could galvanize uh, material and grant it life. And I guess the thought behind it was with some sort of energy. And so she was hearing them discuss that. And uh, I think Darwin, Darwin's works were being discussed. And she, that night had what she called a waking dream um, sounds like kind of a nightmare in which she uh, imagined a very specific image. Quote, I saw the hideous phantasm of a man stretched out and then on the working of some powerful engine show signs of life. So she has this imagining of this giant man being galvanized, right? And he, uh, I think she said he like was leering at her in her bedroom and it terrified her. A few days later, she kept thinking about this image. She was trying to think of her ghost story, and she instead kept coming back to this, like, sort of waking nightmare she'd had. And finally, she said, like, I guess this is my ghost story. I'm going to write this story. So she writes the early version of Frankenstein. Um, It was very short at the time, and um, Percy read it and said, you need to expand this out into a full-length work. And he encouraged her to write, to make it into a full-length novel. Um, which she does credit him for. I have there's like a forward she wrote in in my edition that I did read, and she credits him with that. He wrote a forward to the novel, um, but that seems to be his main influence. Anyway, so she returns back to uh, England, I believe, and she's now got the idea for Frankenstein. She gets pregnant again. Um, I won't detail all of the, uh, the the ins and outs of her pregnancies, but she uh, would eventually have three children that all died. By 22, she was already the mother of her three deceased children. Um, She gave birth to a fourth child who would survive into adulthood um, shortly after. And that began a sort of brief period of happiness in her life. Um, That lasted until 1822, when they all traveled to the Italian coast to visit a friend. And while there, her relationship was sort of on the rocks with Percy. Um, He, both of them were like, severely depressed about losing their three children, very understandably. Also, he was having multiple affairs. 
Um, so she was not happy about that. Their relationships were on the rocks and he took out a, sh- a boat into the lake. He was warned by people that the weather was bad. At one point, another ship saw him. They tried to tell him, hey, this is dangerous. You need to come in. And he refused. So some people are theorizing maybe he had a death wish. Unclear. Um, but he would his his ship would sink and he would die um, at age 29. And she was heartbroken by this. Um, her, he would be buried due to Italian law. And then she would have his body exhumed so he could be cremated. Um, and legend goes that she retrieved his heart from the ashes, wrapped it in silk, and would carry it with her for the rest of her life. Whether or not that's true, I don't know. But that's the legend. Metal! That's pretty badass, <laughs> yeah. Um, Lord Byron came and was there, and a bunch of other poets that he knew came and read. And, and it was, you know, this very romantic uh, funeral. Um Unfortunately, shortly after that, basically everybody who was at that lake, that lake house died within a few years. And she was like the only remaining person from that group. Um, Now, in the midst of all of this, Frankenstein was published in 1818 and was immediately immensely popular. Critics were divided. Some of it thought it was very... Uh, sort of garish and uncouth and like, oh, you know, don't talk about that kind of stuff. But readers loved it, of course. They were they, they read it like crazy. It, it immediately started getting uh, adaptations into the- theatrical productions starting in 1823. Um, however, at the time, unfortunately, because it was an incredibly sexist time, um, the, the prevailing wisdom among readers was that this was actually written by her husband, Percy Shelley, and not her. Um, and it wasn't until years later that she would begin to finally get the credit that she deserved for writing this novel um, as she continued to write other novels and sort of demonstrated that she was a very capable writer in her own right. And I think people finally sort of had to admit that maybe a woman was actually capable of writing this novel. Um, so she uh, after that, her life finally kind of settled down a little bit. She was a, a mother to her uh, solely surviving son. Um, I think she had another miscarriage. So she was pregnant five times in like six years. Um, and only one of which would go on to live. Um, Eventually, she would write biographies for famous people. She wrote a few other novels, including one called The Last Man, which is now considered her second greatest work and one of the very first post-apocalyptic novels. Um, Apparently, it's about a man surviving in, like, a pandemic, and, like, everybody dies, and he's, like, out in the world. So I thought that was pretty interesting. (laughs) Um, Anyway, she would, unfortunately, still die fairly young at the age of 53 due to a brain tumor that she suffered with for years. So very tragic life filled with lots and lots of death. I don't think she ever remarried. Um, she, she was you know, madly in love with Percy Shelley and you know, lost so many of her children. It's really, really tragic, but um, also just iconic life when you think about this group of people on this, you know, this lake house in the 1800s writing all this wild stuff that is so influential and like Percy Shelley is incredibly influential poet and like Lord Byron, like people still study today the, the works of these, these romantics. And then she writes this novel that is kind of seen as part of the romantic period, but also sort of critical of the prevailing romantic attitude um, because it was a lot darker and more pessimistic about humanity than the more hopeful uh, writings of these others. So um, really incredible and interesting life, and I'm just scratching the surface there, but I want to give you both a chance to to react to her life. I don't know if you knew all of that already or if some of that's new to you. I think I'd known some bits and pieces of that, like notably that carrying around Percy Bishy Shelley's heart. Oh, yeah. <laughs> which is just that. metal. That's great. Um, yeah. 
And yeah, I mean, she's, um, none of that surprises me. Like even, maybe even especially the bit about attributing her writings to her husband. Because I know that's yeah. been a problem we've had throughout history of like, you know, women writing stuff. And then people just kind of like handing the credit to the nearest man standing next to them. <laughs> but like, um, you know, I'm glad that they, within her lifetime, that she got to see some credit for her own work, which is pretty incredible. Um, yeah. And I'm, I, I'm just really caught up in the image of this bizarre horny writers retreat that's happening in the middle of the most apocalyptic year <laughs> and, then, and lord byron having to give them all like a writing assignment so they would like get their minds off of their like weird psychosexual drama they're creating in this house it's hilarious um i'm it's obviously really going to the, to the wrong writer retreats um it's not been my experience but i could i can i could see the dynamic hosted by medical doctors i guess who just like have have intellectuals come stay with them it, like as one does you know yeah like, <laughs> also apparently that's what we need to do is like yeah have um doing electrical experiments in the living room and right um it's really funny yeah did i say that his 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 physician was wanted to sleep with mary shelley and then her her stepsister wanted to sleep with byron and it was like this whole like I, we I need a diagram heard, for this there was yeah. a diagram <laughs> of like who wanted to sleep with who and then i think by the time they left um her stepsister was pregnant with lord byron's child so so there's some success there like yeah some, there was some, some of success. those connections got success, made i guess like... yeah <laughs> <laughs> then and can we even talk for a minute about like just that motif of rampant disease like um and that's yeah. that's, in, that's in frankenstein the book too i don't know if you guys noticed that like how many times in the book that someone will be like, hey, Victor, we didn't hear from you for three months. And so we were that you died of scarlet fever. So we sent some right. check on you. And there's just this kind of like very loaded sort of feeling when people are saying write letters and they say, I hope that you're well. Yeah. Um, and like it, it kind of just made me like maybe especially writing, you know, reading this during the pandemic you know, that we're going through, like in, through most of our lifetimes, we've not really had to deal with like infectious diseases. It's just being a thing. That yeah. you, you think about a lot. <laughs> yeah. There's also the bit where um, Victor's mother like has to care for uh, the that girl that they adopted. And and just the way that like it's heartbreaking because like it, sh they were telling her not to be by her bedside. And she was like, no, I need to be there for this person and everything. And like what sacrifice that actually meant at the time and everything. Like it's just like, you know, obviously that was kind of normal for the for the period, like people having to deal with that kind of stuff on a daily. So. Yeah, I mean, like our our pandemic has been bad, but at least we have pretty modern science to right. to back it up, you know, to fight against it. And and uh, her, sorry, in the novel, Victor's mother dies from scarlet fever when he's young, and it sort of is one of the things that propels him on to want to study the things that he study and studies and work in the the work that he does. And I was seeing parallels with her own life there, right? Like how she lost her mother at a very young age and she goes on to be this amazing writer and how, you know, how the legacy of her mother probably influenced her so much. And I, I think there's a little bit of that getting into to Victor's story as well. You got to wonder, like, if you could, like, launch a bottle of Purell back to the past and teach them to wash <laughs> their hands, like, how many more of these writers would have made it a longer, you know? It's like... yeah. It's an incredible piece of technology when you stop and think about it, but you know. <laughs> yeah, truly. All right, so let's get into the novel itself because we've got so much. Um, I'm going to read a little bit of summary and then we can react to the beginnings of this novel. All right, so Frankenstein begins with a fictional correspondence between Captain Robert Walton and his sister Margaret Seville. Robert Walton is a failed writer who sets out to explore the North Pole in the hopes of expanding scientific knowledge. During the voyage, the crew spots a dog sled driven by a gigantic figure. 
A few hours later, the crew rescues a nearly frozen and emaciated man named Victor Frankenstein. Frankenstein has been in pursuit of the gigantic man observed by Walton's crew. Frankenstein starts to recover from his exertion. He sees in Walton the same obsession that has destroyed him and recounts a story of his life's miseries to Walton as a warning. So this begins Victor Franken's narrative that he is telling to, to Walton. So again, it's like framed in this way. So Victor begins by telling of his childhood. He was born in Naples, Italy into a wealthy Genevian family. At a young age, Victor has a strong desire to understand the world. He is obsessed with studying theories of alchemists. When Victor is five years old, his parents adopt Elizabeth Lavenza, whom Victor would later marry. Weeks before he leaves for university, his mother dies of scarlet fever, and Victor buries himself in his experiments. At university, he excels at chemistry, soon developing a secret technique to impart life to non-living matter. He undertakes the creation of a humanoid, but due to the difficulty in replicating minute parts of the human body, Victor creates the creature as tall, eight feet in height, and proportionally large. Despite Victor's selecting its features to be beautiful, upon animation the creature is instead hideous, with watery white eyes and yellow skin that barely conceals the muscles and blood vessels underneath. Repulsed by his work, Victor flees. While wandering the streets the next day, he meets his childhood friend, Henry Clerval, and takes Clerval back to his apartment, fearful that Clerval's reaction would be if he sees the monster. However, when Victor returns to his laboratory, the creature is gone. Victor falls ill from the experience and is nursed back to health by Clerval. He then receives a letter from his father, notifying him of the murder of his brother, William. Upon arriving in Geneva, Victor sees the creature near the scene of the crime and becomes convinced that the creature is responsible. Justine Moritz is convicted of the crime after William's locket is found in her pocket. Victor knows that no one will believe him if he tries to clear Justine's name, and she is hanged. Ravaged by grief and guilt, Victor retreats into the mountains. While he hikes, he is suddenly approached by the creature, who pleads for Victor to hear, hear his tale. Okay, let's stop there. We got Victor's introductory narrative. We got the framing narrative. Where do we want to start? What, what do you want to react to, uh, Rachel? Uh, <laughs> so much there. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Let's talk about the, the Arctic Explorer guy for a minute there. Because um, I, I think that's one of the most surprising things when you come to this book and you, um, all, you've only been exposed to like the Halloween stereotype of Frankenstein. Yeah. That like suddenly you're dropped into like, you know, the thing. <laughs> Out here in the ice in the middle of nowhere with this random dude like writing a letter to his sister and... Captain Walton is just, he's just trying to have adventures, right? Isn't his whole deal is that he just wants mm-hmm. to go out and see something cool? Um, and then he wants somebody to be a companion, and which kind of oh, mirrors yeah, some stuff that happens in a little bit, yeah. He can definitely say something here about colonialism, I think, and like, yeah. why Victor is sort of acceptable company, but not anyone else, and like um, even this gentleman lifestyle of like needing to go out and have adventures just for the fun of it. Um, but Right, there's even a, a part about like the, he finds the, the company of the sailors to be just beneath him, kind of. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, oh, great, awesome. Yeah. He and Victor suit each, suit each other, is what I'm going to say. You know I mean? Yeah. Kinda. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's immediately taken with Victor when he finds him. He's like, finally, I found a friend. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, we got these series of letters and I was kind of surprised how long it takes before Victor's even introduced. I think it's like letter, letter <laughs> three before they even find him. And then when they do, he doesn't even introduce himself for a while after that. I love that mystery element because I was like, of course I was like, this has got to be like Victor and like yeah. something was happening with a monster out there. Obviously there's a big creature that was out there before. Um, but I did like that because it added that nice little element that I wasn't expecting, which was... 
sort of reciting the entire story, yeah. telling all the things that have led to this point. Well, and it's 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 set up as this like cautionary tale. He's like, I'm going to tell you of all of my miseries and why you should, you know, be forewarned about what you're what you're pursuing here. And I, I love that that that's like um, being used as foreshadowing, right? And it's setting up. We know something really horrible is going to happen because he keeps telling us over and over again. Like my tale is a, is a sorrowful one. Let me explain to you why it's so bad. Um, and that is effective, right? In like a sort of a, a just a storytelling sense of building up what's to come, so that when you're when you're reading it, you're you're like eager to get to those parts and figure out why it's so bad. And then we've got Victor relating like his entire life story before we can get into the story proper. And that that felt like very much like of its of a time in terms yeah. of like what was expected in the storytelling of this era. I it's been a long time since I studied this book in any kind of like um intellectual way. Um but I'm really curious about if like the readers of this time you know, because speculative fiction wasn't really quite so much of a thing in this era, if like this elaborate framing with all the letters is meant to allow the reader enough layers of removal that you're, you're you're hearing about a weird thing that a guy is saying about that happened way down the line instead of like expecting the reader to just believe it in a first person sort of way, you know, like not not like easing an audience into the yes. spec, like the, the more genre type elements because they weren't ready for that. You know, exactly. your kids are going to yeah. love this kind of thing. Well, yeah. and also like, like think about how, um, Sorry, it was only somewhat related, but like thinking about like when the Blair Witch Project came out, Mm. how there was a lot of people who thought that was real, right? Yes. Um, Because that was sort of the marketing behind it. And and we were willing at the time, we weren't as jaded, right? Like we were willing to believe that maybe this was real. This is a time in which the novel was still in its infancy. It was fairly new. You have people like Jane Austen, one of the other writers that we've studied, who, who was writing around the same time. And I, I was thinking of her as I was reading this because I felt like the styles were kind of similar, even though the content was so different. Um, and I just think the, the framing, I'm wondering if that also could establish sort of a legitimacy to the story. And I bet a lot of people had theories about like this being real. This being a real story that someone had, you know, conveyed because I think there was still sort of an idea of fiction as being somehow lesser than. Um, but the idea that maybe this was nonfiction and this was about an actual scientist and, and this is a real, you know, letter like, that I'm reading. It exists. Like you can find the secret formula to life and bring, make the monster live if you find it. This might be at the very end. Um, but like it, it, when the when Captain Walton is talking with Victor and he's like, well, I even tried to ask him what the secret of life was. And Victor's like, are you mad? <laughs> I won't tell you that, which I loved because, like, I was also like seeing Mary Shelley behind it, going like, I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so, so it's Victor won't tell you. <laughs> That's why. Yeah, it's not you aren't you. You shouldn't know this. <laughs> uh, I love that. Um, yeah. So, so Victor starts telling his story, right? And he, uh, we get his life story as he's he's learning all, the, the the tricks of the trade. But then we get uh, eventually to him creating this monster. Uh, I think there is a, 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 the the I think there was lightning, right, in the book. Was there lightning? I don't know if he harnessed lightning or if there was mention of electricity. Maybe it was just a mentioning of electricity earlier, like when he's going through his education and saying, "I studied the like alchemists, and then I studied lightning." And I st- it's mentioned in like the list of things he studied. So, so then the implication is that perhaps he used that. So we don't necessarily see it, which maybe I'm just like conflating a little bit with the many other times we've seen this creation moment. Um, but it, it plays out fairly differently here. He create he creates this figure that he tries to make beautiful, but then he is sort of repulsed by it. But 
Luke, that's the creative life, isn't it? It's the creative life yeah. in a nutshell. <laughs> For like you sure. try to make some it's in your head it's perfect and beautiful, and then you after you've written it, you're like, oh my god. I've selected all of these beautiful pieces what to put I together. Do? <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> But but he he is repulsed by it and and I was at first I was thinking like it's actually a fairly attractive uh, figure that there's just something off about it that is unsettling and you can kind of tell that it's dead and you can kind of see beneath the skin like things like that right and I've seen that version of Frankenstein in other uh, adaptations as well like this sort of handsome dashing version that maybe has some sort of like a uh, undead. F- you know, uh, aspects, but otherwise looks like a fairly normal person. Um, and it's only maybe on close inspection that you notice, but there is other evidence in the novel that maybe no, this is actually quite hideous, uh, sort of decayed creature because other people see and seem to react immediately of like, Oh my God, this is a monster. Um, so, so maybe (laughs) it is kind of a shambling corpse and like, where the reality is, I, I don't know, because it's it's I guess it's it's not really described other than that little bit of description I gave you. Like it's not really specific about exactly how it looks. So it's left to us to imagine. And part of me feels like she's withholding. And like, actually, if you wanted to, you could describe this thing as being a lot more horrific looking. He looks in them in his reflection and is like disgusted with his own appearance. So um, maybe this thing is quite is quite gross. I don't know. What did you picture, Luke? <laughs> I so I kept going back and forth because like I've seen these other was it like Penny Dreadful? Is that the name of that yeah. show? Has yeah. like a handsome dashing version. I've seen some other you know versions like that. Of course, there's the like Boris Karloff, which is what we're going to cover eventually. Um, sort of iconic, you know. Like I, I always I had like a green mask when I was a kid that looked like <laughs> Frank, you know Frankenstein's monster. Um, but like yeah, I guess for me I was picturing something that like at a distance just looked like a tall dude um, and maybe it was like a little pale. But then if you got close, you could see was actually sort of semi decayed. And, and to me, that's actually quite horrifying. So I guess that's what I was picturing. I was somewhere, I was somewhere in in the middle. I think mostly, mostly more towards the horrific just because of the way that people were reacting. And I was sort of taking that cue. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I, I, there, there's a certain, like there's a certain eloquence to this character that, I think th- there's obviously the looks and the inside and the outside and what makes it human and what makes life. I think it's uh, like left to, up to interpretation for the reader, obviously. But for, for my own take, it was definitely more horrific. I just think that there's something really, really, really wrong with his proportions. That, mm. you know, Victor, when he kind of sized him up, he didn't just drag the slider and make him bigger. I think that, like, you know, when I think about just, like, what you have to do to, like, put together a human being, I'm, I, I think that... It probably looked good on paper. Kind of like when you like, <laughs> if you're not an art, so I'm not an artist. And when I try to draw things, like you try to draw a horse or something, and it just looks yeah. like a weird dog. But you know, <laughs> but not. So I almost kind of feel like that Victor is probably not an artist, and that he probably just you know it looked fine until it started moving, yeah. and the proportion suddenly became very very wrong. I like the reasoning for everything to be large, right? Because it's easier to <laughs> sort of manipulate within surgery. The yeah. idea of that is like a cool idea for the time. And I gotta know, like, I mean, you know, if he, if the idea is that he's using corpse parts to put this together, how do you size up? I gotta know. How do you size up? You're right. The proportions had to be weird, right? Because you have like yes. a normal sized nose on a giant face, and like you, there has to be like weird mismatches. Just stick going an extra on. muscle in the cheeks. Like, what did you do? Like, what exactly? I want to know what. <laughs> Specifically, Victor, you owe it to me to tell me. Yeah. 
Which, how did you size up? It sounds harder to me than just keeping a normal-sized person. <laughs> you know? So this is also the point where I was immediately very frustrated with Victor. Because oh <laughs> his initial reaction is, oh my god, what have I done? I'm going to run away. Yeah. And, and like basically bury his head in the sand. And, and ignore this thing that he's given life to. Like, the monster later on will sort of think of Victor as having a responsibility as his creator. And he totally does. And he totally like shirks that from the jump. He Oh, he's- it's worse than that, Luke. It's like, not only does he not have, so it's like he runs away, which I kind of understand. But when he comes back and he sees the monster's gone, he goes, okay, problem solved. Yeah, yeah. Like- <laughs> Took care of himself, I guess. <laughs> what did you think was going to happen, buddy? <laughs> like- and and the tragedy of it all is like as we're getting further along is the the you're leaving a baby basically I don't know to to fend for itself right. and and how tragic of a figure the monster which is. he doesn't seem to think about at all like oh, we no. don't get any thoughts from or he doesn't relate any like what would life be like for this creature who doesn't know where he is he must be so scared like uh, none of that right like it's just it's just like fear and repulsion immediately like even if like if we if, if we go with victor logic and we say that it's a horrible shambling monster out there killing people why doesn't he tell someone warn them about that like oh no they wouldn't believe him <laughs> i guess not yes yeah, so, yeah. no it right just there. seems too easy right like i could solve this problem but i just won't even yeah i know i'm just gonna let this woman die because yes. uh no one would believe me anyway so no point in even trying i guess i wish i could save her but i can't i mean yeah <laughs> victor's passivity is like his like that heroic flaw you often get in those yeah. heroes and you know i mean he's um he's great oh he, like sh- they're interviewing her in the in the jail later and he's like in the corner just like emoting <laughs> she's like what's wrong with him what's he doing over there and he's like my pain is so great agony <laughs> He's like, you might be sad, but at least you have innocence to, to warm your heart. I oh, feel guilty. You know, he's so dramatic. Oh, God. And But does nothing. Like, he re- repeatedly takes no action to correct any of his wrongdoing, uh, which is incredibly maddening. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, it does make him a compelling character. So then he goes up into the mountain, and he finally sees the creature, and he's like, you are the one who's done this all along. And then... <laughs> The creature's like, you're going to hear my story, <laughs> so come with me. And and, and I think the sh- there's a shocking reveal, if I may, that he is so eloquent and well-spoken. Mm-hmm. I think this is a big surprise for the readers at the time. They're expecting this to be the shambling monster that has no intelligence. And then that launches into the creature's narrative, uh, which is our next part of the book here, which I'll read. And like, I, I, I think this is a big twist for the book, right? All of a sudden, holy crap, this this creature is intelligent and thinking about its own circumstance um, and and, in a really profound and philosophical way. So, the creature's narrative. Intelligent and articulate, the creature relates his first days of life, living alone in the wilderness. He has found that people are afraid of him and hate him. While living in an abandoned structure connected to a cottage, he grew fond of the poor family living there. The creature learned to speak by listening to them and taught himself to read. When he saw his reflection in a pool, he realized his appearance was hideous, and it horrified him as much as it horrified humans. He eventually approached the family in hopes of becoming their friend, entering their house while only the blind father was present. The two conversed, but on the return of the others, the rest of them were frightened. The blind man's son attacked him, and the creature fled. The family left their home out of fear that he would return. Although he hated his creator for abandoning him, he decided to travel to Geneva to find him because he believed that Victor was the only person with a responsibility to help him. On the journey, he rescued a child who had fallen into a river, but her father shot him in the shoulder. The creature then swore revenge against all humans. 
He traveled to Geneva using details from Victor's journal, murdered William, and framed Justine. The creature demands that Victor create a female companion like himself. He argues that as a living being, he has a right to happiness. The creature promises that he and his mate will vanish into the South American wilderness, never to reappear. Should Victor refuse, the creature threatens to kill Victor's remaining friends and loved ones and not stop until he completely ruins him. Victor reluctantly agrees. Okay, so the creature's narrative. Let's talk about it. Yeah, it definitely makes him more sympathetic. Um, it's interesting to me because um, it also makes the monster seem like, to me, he reads as like um, a person who's at a much younger developmental stage than his body is. Um mainly because of like the, the big ups and downs and emotional regulation where it's kind of like, you know, he goes from, you know, I'm, I'm pure and ready to give my love to the, you know, anyone who's even like the slightest bit nice to me, or at least not hostile to me to like violently, violently angry at rejection to then like, no, I want to like save a little girl from the water to like, no, I'm going to kill all humans. Yeah. Like, um, and like, but it makes sense. Cause like, I mean, when you, if you ever like work with like young children of a certain age, like there's that kind of like emotional volatility that comes from the fact that you're just not emotionally developed the way adults are. And I find that really tragic for him where it's like, you know, he's um, like, you know, one year old or how, I don't know how many years pass from the time that he's created to when he meets Victor, but like, yeah, like, but it's not that long. Of, I mean, it's not that long of a time, like, um, that the, the span that this book takes place over. And so, like, you know, he's obviously, you know, very sympathetic and very, very intelligent. But man, I feel bad for this guy. And I also, in some ways, I really kind of sympathize with Victor's fears, like, for the, you know, in the next part of the book, because of the fact that, like, you know, here you have someone who's kind of murdered a few people, done, done a few murders, but he pinky swears that he'll stop if he just, you know, <laughs> if someone's nice to him one time. And, and I'm not really quite sure by that, like in some ways, honestly, that that he has the emotional regulation to carry through with that promise. But then again, he's never really given the shot. So, you know. <laughs> I, I just put all of it on Victor. Like, yeah. I, you know, if you leave like someone out in nature they're gonna have to like find their way whether it's through violence or whatever it is and whether they're threat he I, I don't think that he ever did anything out of malice right away it was more a reaction to the way he was being treated or something else happened so he was pretty pure from the start and that's why he said it's he's so sympathetic to me is that he's developmentally progressing very quickly and like is learning all of this and in and, and retaining all of this a lot of things that like make for humanity like make for what society is and and I, I mentioned before but like the history that he goes through the history that he's learning and the way that he watches this family and what family means and having people who love you having companions mirroring uh how the uh explorer i forget his name right now was was looking for a companion now we're gonna see the monster seeking companionship all of these things like are so baseline human and that's like some of the necessities of life are are and, and we're so we're seeing this character have to like come to grips with this on its own without any sort of instruction. The only thing it has is the the readings and the teachings and the diary. And we come to find out that it that the monster realizes that he, it's like this hated, disgusting thing from Victor's diary. So it's like just tragic tragedy upon tragedy with this character and like can't can't catch a break and can't find any sort of place to belong so what are you going to do besides lash out so yeah I, I understand the monster's sort of progression through the story i guess i always hate that moment where like when i read this book of like when he finally makes the decision to go talk with the blind man and that everyone returns home too soon and i'm like no why <laughs> like, i wish he just had like a half an hour more you know right and, 
and I think that's how you can start to look at some like larger themes, right? Like because it's not just Victor who rejects the creature. It's it's everybody. All of society rejects him, right? And what is that saying about society's reaction to scientific advancement or is it all a metaphor for something else is a metaphor for race or for for what have you right um it, it, it just the other in general and well victor at least knows what the creature is what the monster is yeah. when other people are being caught off guard yeah. by by this obviously not they're judging a book by its cover right. but interpreting what that means within society and what the what the allegory is there is interesting to think about you know and, and honestly it's like it stretches belief but is is convenient and useful for the narrative for the Frankenstein's monster to be able to achieve the sort of intellectual acuity that it is mm-hmm. able to achieve <laughs> as quickly as it does. Um, and I thought there was a really clever bit of uh, storytelling where there's this Arabian uh, woman named Safi, I believe, who comes to stay with this family and they teach her how to speak English. And through her lessons, uh, the, the monster is sort of able to just listen at this like hole in the wall and and take in all of the take in all of these lessons, learn about history, learn how to speak, and then um, he finds these books. And he's able to learn to write through that, and sort of have you know he must have like a, a brilliant mind to be able to pick it up so quickly, but um, very quickly uh, picks up all of this um, history and and even says that like the ethics and like right and wrong and and moral morality of human morality is imparted to the creature so that the expectation or or my understanding is that the creature knows what he is doing is wrong as he is murdering people to punish victor and that makes that his sort of existence even more tortured and and tragic because He's like, if you if you all see me as a monster, then I'm going to be a monster. If Victor only sees me as a monster, then I'm going to be that monster. And he knows that it's wrong, but he's going to do it anyway. And he knows that framing Justine is is a bad thing to do, but does it anyway. Um, and yeah, I don't know. Like, the, it's the creation of man uh, in the in, in the in the guise of this monster created by Victor Frankenstein, and how it turns. And um, I don't know. It's like a that is such a profound and interesting story to tell in, in the context of science that uh, we've seen it told time and time again in different guises, I think, over the years. It's it's really funny you mentioned that. This is tangentially related, but um, there's, a, there's a joke that kind of goes round and round amongst like, female science fiction writers that at some point in your career you have to write a pregnant man story. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I'm really amused when I think about Frankenstein as like the first pregnant man story in a sense. That it's not just about can people create life? It's about can men create life and be responsible for it too? And in that sense, you know, Victor's a very failed parent figure um, <laughs> on, yeah. on a bunch of levels. And it's kind of interesting to me that, you know, for if Mary Shelley sort of intended that as a little snark when she was writing this, like, especially as someone who, you know, really wanted live children in her life. And, you know. I also think it's, you know, we're talking about this scientific ambition, right? Like throwing the world away and just chasing after this idea of creating life, becoming a God nearly. Um, and like what, what that is saying about science and what Mary Shelley was, you know, is this a cautionary tale? Is this about anti-science? I don't think it's anti-science, but more so science of the time was so unknown. It was like almost magic and almost supernatural in a sense. So, so she's kind of commenting on some of that. Yeah. And then we're going to see how people, I mean, like in, in this, the actual world where she's writing, they're just a few decades out from, 
what happens to the guy that invents hand washing. It's very hostile. Right. Um, like they, they, they put him in an asylum for work for just having the idea. And like, I think that she's probably doing a pretty good representation of how people would react to this sort of giant jump in technology and just not being prepared for something that challenges like everything about how you see the world. Something that others would see as unnatural or something like that. Yes. Yeah. And just not okay. You've got to destroy it. And you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure anyone tries to destroy the the creature other than Victor. I guess the the townsfolk initially. Right. <laughs> yeah, they're already right some grabbing the torches and going after him. Yeah, it seemed like it, <laughs> but he's able to escape that. I, I do think the whole section with the monster looking through the cottage and then reciting his story to Victor was was definitely the most compelling part to me. That was my favorite part of the novel. It's so great. Yeah, yeah. it's good. Um, I, I so we talked about how she wrote this when she was 19, and I kept thinking of how absolutely incredible. First off, that is. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. The Amazing. only thing that I could see that tells me that maybe like a teenager is is writing this, and I know that like a teenager in this era is very different than a teenager today, but just how extra and emotive <laughs> everybody is. Like yes. Victor's yeah. like throwing himself to the ground and like he's crying out to the heavens and he's going to like be moody amongst nature and just brood <laughs> and he's doing all this. And then we get the monster who's also very extra and yes. just like super emotional. <laughs> no and like you were saying, like almost childlike. And it seems like, you know, all of our main characters are just so emotive and, and just full of, you know, just passion and I was like, this this is the thing that feels kind of like teenager writing to me. It, even if everything else doesn't, just the powerful emotions of being that age is, I think, coming across. And and like how that can work in this story um, is interesting rather than rather than sort of, um, I don't know, like drag it down a little bit and said it works really well because the, the it does feel earned in a sense and, and also just kind of a piece of character. But um, that was my one sense of like, yeah, I think maybe there is a teenager at the heart of this, just feeling things very deeply. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's something very dramatic about that, though. Like, I, I definitely, I don't know, I clicked into that. I was yeah. like, something about it, like I said, it feels like so dramatic as to something like almost Shakespeare or something like that, where it's like these archetypes of someone who's going through something almost. I think that one of the fun things about stories about that age is just that um, because like everything's the first time it feels like extra intense and like you, you, you have no concept of how long your life can go. And so when something goes wrong, it feels like the whole world's ended. Um, and it, I mean, it, you, I, I agree with you, James. I think it works so incredibly well for the story. And I think that it only complements the way it feels. But yeah, it is very heightened and very, 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 very intense. And, you know, and like I said, like me for as someone who works with children, <laughs> my thought was, like, oh, that, that that poor dear, I'd love to like teach him some emotional regulation and just understand that there's other ways we deal with our feelings. And like, maybe if, if a person rejects you once, you can try again. Um, yeah. <laughs> but like, I, I, and I actually don't, I, I'm with you, James, I don't, I hold Victor responsible for all that, because that, that the monster doesn't have anyone to, like, you know, that, that's a thing you teach. That's a thing you teach children. That's not a thing that you just pick up on your own. And, you know, I think you know, he's doing the best he can with what he's got. That was going to be my next question is like, how do we feel about what eventually plays out here at the end of this recounting where he goes and murders this child and then frames this woman that he doesn't know. No, before he murders the child, he wants to kidnap her and like raise her as... <laughs> Like, yeah, I love that whole idea. Like he just grabs a random kid and is like, "I'm gonna raise you," and she's like, "No, I want to go." And he's like, "Nope, you'll never see your mother or father again." <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty fucked up, right? And then he, yeah, kills the child and then frames this woman. And just to get back at Victor and like this is the first part where I, I kind of like I was feeling so connected and like uh, empathetic for the for the creature's plight. 
Um, but yeah, this this part is kind of tough to stand behind what what the creature's doing here. It's pretty fucked up. Um, well, that's the tragedy of it is that you're like, oh, this character could have gone a different way. Yeah, if only somebody had shown him some kindness, and ultimately that responsibility does fall to Victor, right? And he's the one who didn't. Um, okay, so let's get to I think the next part of the, the narrative here, where we return to Victor Frankenstein's point of view. So Clerval accompanies Victor to England, but they separate at Scotland. Working on the female creature in Orkney Island, he is plagued by premonitions of disaster. He fears that the female will hate the creature and become more evil than he is. Even more worrying to him is the idea that creating the second creature might lead to the breeding of a race that would plague humankind. He tears apart the unfinished female creature after he sees the the creature watching him through a window. The creature immediately bursts in through the door and tries to threaten him into working again, but Victor is convinced that since the creature is evil, his mate would be evil as well. The creature leaves, but gives a threat. I will be with you on your wedding night. Victor sails out to sea to dispose of his instruments, falls asleep in the boat, and is unable to return to shore because of the changes of the wind, and he ends up being blown to the Irish coast. When Victor lands in Ireland, he is arrested for Clerval's murder, as the creature has strangled Clerval and left the corpse to be found. Victor suffers another mental breakdown and wakes to find himself in prison. However, he is shown to be innocent and he returns home with his father. In Geneva, Victor is about to marry Elizabeth when he prepares to fight the creature to the death. The night following their wedding, Victor asks Elizabeth to stay in her room while he looks for the fiend. While Victor searches the house and the grounds, the creature strangles Elizabeth. From the window, Victor sees the creature who tauntingly points at Elizabeth's corpse. Victor tries to shoot him, but the creature escapes. Victor's father, weakened by age and by the death of Elizabeth, dies a few days later. Seeking revenge, Victor pursues the creature through Europe and into Russia. Eventually, the chase leads to the Arctic Ocean and then on towards the North Pole, and Victor reaches a point where he is within a mile of the creature, but he collapses from exhaustion before he finds his quarry, allowing the creature to escape. Eventually, the ice around Victor's sledge breaks apart, and the resultant ice flow comes within range of Walton's ship, which gets us back to where we began the novel. Okay, so... Uh, this is about the sort of uh, the task that has been given to Victor that he he did accept that he's going to go and make the Bride of Frankenstein. <laughs> um, and he uh, is working on this female creature when he sees the uh, his his creation show up in the window and is like delighted by what he's doing. And as soon as he sees that, he's like, nope. And he destroys it. Um, and he has this thought about how it's going to be evil too. And like, what if she doesn't agree to this? And I actually thought he had some pretty good points as to like why he probably shouldn't go through with this. But on the other hand, I also felt really bad for the creature who just wants a friend and like, is just kind of driven by loneliness. What were, what were your takes on, on this whole part and the, the bride of Frankenstein uh, creation? I'm really amused by how literal the the monster's request is. So it's kind of like, you know, I have no friend, make me a friend and they'll have yep. to be my friend. Yeah. <laughs> and then like, um, I, and I really, really appreciate because I mean, at first when I read it, I was like, this is like really uncomfortable that you're just going to like literally make him a woman and give him the woman and the woman's going to like him for some reason and be his, what? Like, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. And then eventually <laughs> I think Victor comes around and like, wait a minute. She's going to have independent thought, too. What if she doesn't like him? <laughs> and um, She might not agree to go to South America and great. live in isolation. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I actually kind of like did a little fist bump, and I'm, I'm glad that Mary Shelley put that in there, that you know, she realized that. That, to me, is is that evidence of her, her sort of feminist 
mother yes. and how she like she went on to live oh, a God. life that that was yeah. very liberal and pro-feminist and like all the seven it was it's throughout a lot of her work and uh yeah i was definitely thinking like yeah this is this is a book written by a woman who was able to think of this sort of stuff and it's funny because yeah. like later science fiction books that kind of have similar motifs will fall on that 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 particular stuff like they'll, they'll fall on their, their faces on the same topic yep. so it's kind of like oh great like she was ahead a- of her time in so many ways yeah yeah i i was surprised that the the lack of women characters you know there were there were a few but they were mostly killed off and you know being written to fodder within the story i wonder if that's sort of like a if if there was any sense of like i mean like if you're gonna write a like a a famous scientist doctor at the time like to be credible she probably felt like she had to be a man right and also i thought it was kind of a good marketing decision even more so than like a realism thing because that happens even to this day like whether you know female authors get a lot of pressure to like make the main character male so that you can sell it. So especially in children's lit, it's like, oh, boys won't read books that are about girls. So you make the book about a boy so that everyone reads it. So you have this sort of like marketing advice that's more about... Self-perpetuating problem too, right? <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah. Oh, exactly. So it's like if you don't read books by you know, about women, then you don't... Then that will never yeah. change. So anyway, so I, I, I kind of wonder... But like, um, I, I, I am very upset by how Victor treats Elizabeth in particular. Like, even the whole logic of like, I had this really big secret. I know the monster is like coming for my ass on my wedding night, but the wedding night only involves me. <laughs> yeah. Well, so much of the story, so much of the story is about like, if Victor just started telling people what was going on and being open. Yeah. The, the, maybe the entire story plays out differently. Yeah, maybe Elizabeth would choose not to marry him. Maybe somebody talks some sense into him about being a good father. Oh, yeah. yeah, he's like, he's going to tell her. He's like, I'll tell you, I'll tell you later about it. But then he yeah, never but I'm like, you know, I kind of feel like if you're marrying someone, you owe it to them to disclose any murderous creatures that might be murdering <laughs> you right. and or them on your wedding night. Like, it's just, you know. But it is so frustrating, too, because he also, like, says things about how, like, actually I'm super guilty and I'm rot, you know, like I can't believe how guilty I am and I feel so bad. I'll explain it all to you later, but Oh, I feel so <laughs> bad. You know, and it's yes. like, it's like, like when you're married and you can't possibly then tell anyone else who's like, <laughs> it's like, if you're going to keep it a secret, keep it a secret, Victor. Don't like, just keep talking about it in such vague ways. Like oh, God. So frustrating. <laughs> I'm wondering what he, like, he must have some other quality to him. Like he must be like really, really hot. Like there's gotta be something yeah, about him. It, I like, mean, maybe. why do people put up with you you must just be extraordinarily attractive like (laughs) so he ends up destroying the creature right he's he's, he can't go through with it and he's going to dispose of his instruments and sort of all evidence and like when i was thinking about this this is also another part where i was thinking about how gruesome this scenario actually is Right. Like he's he's in he's got all of these like body parts that he's stitching together and he's got this half formed corpse that he's working on when the creature arrives. And like it's not described in a way that is uh, um, perhaps if a a modern writer was writing it, we might expect it to get a little more gruesome. Um, And instead, instead, it's very with withdrawn and sort of reserved in its description. But if you stop and think about what's actually happening, it's all there, right? Like you can imagine how grotesque this would actually be and how, how, how horrifying. Um, and, well, and how taboo the acts are, right? Oh, he's, yeah. He's digging up graves. He has to be digging up graves and, you know, taking not an entire body, right? He's taking sections of bodies yeah. to put the other Oh, yeah. Right? He's like, a, he's like <laughs> it, it, they're just these tools for me that I can use in my craft. Yeah. And, and, and that is pretty horrifying in and of itself that's a tough thing to justify to yourself too like oh i'm gonna dig up bodies and cut them up like 
that that's justified <laughs> like hallowed ground some would some would say like buried bodies well and this was the thing that that actual doctors and stuff would do like uh, rachel was referring to earlier but like practicing on corpses was a big thing and and i think yeah. like the rest of society kind of was okay with it but also probably viewed it as being kind of like i don't know about that too at the same time right like, a lot of consent I, yeah kind of like <laughs> like I'm, I'm sure they weren't like ethically donated i'm sure that he probably yeah paid someone to go get to get grandma and grandma's now going to become part of the bride and you know <laughs> it's just a weird idea like i mean can we talk for a minute like i actually thought this section was funny because of like um in some ways his lack of urgency after his conversation with the monster that you know it's almost like okay i've got to do this thing but first yeah. of all i want to go sightseeing <laughs> yeah keep putting <laughs> it off was, yeah that, that can wait till which i mean i think represents like his ambivalence towards the task but um I thought it was just the way it was constructed told me a lot about the lifestyle of gentlemen in this time. And the fact that like, I was, I was like, oh, dude, does he ever have a job in this book? Does he ever, like, <laughs> He's doing it as like leisure. Yeah, he's leisurely. Like, <laughs> I guess not. <laughs> leisurely experimenting and creating just, you know, life. Yes, yeah. exactly. As one does. Just kind of the writerly life used to look very different to think just that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or, or the writerly life was only really available to certain class Defin- of people. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> You could go to the, the horny writing retreat. Exactly. Or Byron. Yeah, and- yeah. <laughs> so, all right, let's get the final section here, which is Captain Walton's uh, final sec- uh, sort of summing up of what happens here. So at the end of Victor's narrative, Captain Walton resumes telling the story. A few days after the creature vanishes, the ship becomes trapped in packed ice, and Walton's crew insists on returning south once it is freed. Upon hearing the crew's demands, Victor is angered and gives a powerful ch- speech to them. However, through the speech, he makes an impression on the crew. It is not enough to change their minds. And when the ship is freed, Walton regretfully decides to return south. Victor, even though he is very in a very weak condition, states that he will go on by himself. He is adamant that the creature must die. Victor dies shortly thereafter, telling Walton in his last words to, quote, seek happiness and tranquility and avoid ambition. Walton discovers the creature on his ship, mourning over Victor's body. The creature tells Walton that Victor's death has not brought him peace. Rather, his crimes have made him even more miserable than Victor ever was. The creature vows to kill himself so that no one else will ever know of his existence, and Walton watches as the creature drifts away on an ice raft, never to be seen again. Okay, that's the end of the novel. Uh, so what do we think about this finale as Victor dies, uh, never, never really actually coming face-to-face with the creature again? And then his legacy is sort of left to live on um, and take care of itself, I guess. Uh, although it seems that the creature is going to commit suicide, it seems like. I think that, I mean, with this being like the very early era of novel writing, I'm sure that, to me, I'm not sure that this book could have had any other ending in terms of, other than everyone dies and there's sort of a little <laughs> moral at the end about don't yeah. do what I did, I did a bad Um and to me, that feels, I mean, you know, they weren't ready for anti-heroes, right? I regret nothing! <laughs> or, yeah. Or, you know, or you know, even like um, unfinished innings where the monster shambles off into the snow and you, we all wonder if he's still out there somewhere. Um, right. Yeah. So it felt very tied up to me, but in a way that maybe just wouldn't suit modern taste the same way that maybe it was appropriate back then. I would have loved for the monster have been like, fuck you! <laughs> <laughs> very different book, if so, right? <laughs> yeah, so it'll pop up when you least suspect me. Well, maybe not, but you know. <laughs> Although the monster did all these horrific things, still at the end, I was sad for the way that he's like mourning 
his creator in that way. And and another thing we didn't touch a ton on, but I haven't and I haven't read this story, but I kind of know the gist of what it's about. Uh, the that book Paradise Lost uh, is referenced, and the idea of like God and Adam and Eve and and the devil and all of these things, and the way that that's maybe speaking to when you're playing God and you create is this character in obviously the monster read this story so is seeing himself as a creation of someone and the ways that it's not a benevolent god that he has it's this mortal that is flawed and and then ultimately ends up dying at the end and then the monster mourns its creator and it's it wanted to murder him or ruin his life and make him miserable because of because he brought him into existence and what that says about like if you believed in in religion as this is is kind of leading to is like if the god created you and sort of abandoned you in this world to try to figure out your way which kind of i would argue is the case if you believe in religion like uh if you believe in christianity specifically uh is that like you are kind of it's a dark world and you're kind of been abandoned and left to your own devices and the the god isn't intervening in anything um so that you know as christianity was was massively um it was a massive part of society at this time like to be commenting on something like that is sad and then also something that the creature if the creature does end up living and surviving although it seems like it's going to kill itself would have to live with and try to find purpose and what does it mean to be alive and why was i created and that sort of thing yeah the the philosophical musings about life and creation and and who has you know what responsibility to who I find like that's endlessly fascinating here. And um, I, I couldn't find whether or not Mary Shelley thought of herself as an atheist, but I know Percy Shelley was sort of famously an atheist um, at a time where that wasn't again, very popular. Um, and this discussion, I'm thinking of this atheist having this discussion with Lord Byron about galvanism and Darwin and about the nature of life. And she names this book Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus, Prometheus being the one who who got the fire, got the flame of life, right, and was able to start society. Um, and a modern Prometheus creating life, creating a creature who uh, itself is sort of the spawn of humanity. And if you think about like modern AI and robotics and uh, as we all are still sort of in the dawning age of artificial intelligence becoming more and more advanced, um, how we are in a in a world where science is enabling humanity to create life in a sense. And it's starting to become, I think this story is, that's why it feels almost more applicable today than it ever has. Um, as we see this sort of fictional situation starting to become a reality in some sense. Um, and it's it, it starting to feel closer and closer to something that could actually happen. Um, and, and that's amazing to me because this is, you know, over 200 years old. And I, one of my early things I wrote in my notes was how it feels kind of like time traveling to go back and read a novel like this because you get a sense and a look at what life was like written at the time by somebody who lived in that time. Not not a modern writer looking back, but a writer who is living in this moment, writing about this moment. Um, and how cool that is. I don't know, that, that connection of someone who was writing 200 years ago to today. And like, I, I have a story that's out in reckoning right now. That's about uh, an artificial intelligence and, and its relation to its creation and its creators and how I'm like, wow, you know, I was talking about some of the same stuff um, and, and you know, how it's still so 
pertinent to uh, what's going on today. I know it's amazing. Can't even fathom being 19 years old and writing something right? like this. Like, I just don't understand what was in the water back then. <laughs> Volcanic ash, apparently. <laughs> right. Yeah, seriously. Lack of sunlight is what, what the secret is. A little bit of depression going on and like... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> whatever like probably like opium or whatever drugs they were all doing i'm sure they were right drugs, right true like yeah. if lord byron's involved i really like that yeah. quote to seek happiness and tranquility and avoid and avoid ambition um I, although i feel like that's not necessarily like 100 percent true there's also like something like especially people who are maybe very ambitious it can be nice to hear every now and then of like sometimes our ambition can can lead to unhappiness for sure because you set expectations for yourself and you set goals for yourself that can be unattainable and how much unhappiness happens when you don't live up to that ambition and how like, yeah, just seeing happiness and tranquility, just being okay in the moment and in, 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 in life. And then, you know, the status quo is okay sometimes. Um, so that, that was a, a quote that, that stuck with me even after finishing reading this one. Good advice for Victor in particular. Yeah. He definitely seems sure. like someone who could have used a little bit of chill, yeah, and he's yeah. the one who gives it at the end, right? Like, he's, yeah. he's, I guess he's learned his lesson in that sense. Um, maybe he should have should have uh, listened to himself earlier in life. Well, he seemingly had like a nice life set up mm. for himself. Like he, you know, he got to pursue the world of academia, yeah. and he's sort of just like getting to experiment and do all these things. But then he gets so caught in his ambition, and he sort of, and, and again, the cautionary. I guess I haven't really fully wrapped my mind around the sort of cautionary tale of what this is about. Is like there is something noble to pursuing whatever your whatever your field is and the cautionary tale i guess just is there's a limit to it there's a there's a line that you shouldn't cross um but but at the same time some of it feels like watch out because you know you might create a monster if you if you pursue something i i take it also away i mean you could see that for sure but I, i think there's also this lesson of if you're going to create something you have a responsibility to it and you need to not shirk that because that's ultimately the problem here, right? Is Victor, he just, he abdicates his responsibility and that, that is a problem, right? Like if you're going to do something, you got to own it and you got to like follow through and do the difficult part that comes after, not just try and take the credit, I guess. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, Also at the end, (laughs) uh, the creature is like, I actually am the most tragic. And I, <laughs> you thought Victor's story was sad. My story was way more sad. And I just wanted like Victor to like come alive one last time. Actually, I was the more sad. Because like that was like the whole book was just the back and forth about who was the more tragic and who had the worst life. Um, I just thought it was funny. It's this competition. It's very, like, it's very solipsistic, isn't it? It's like, I'm the one who suffered. No one, no one suffered more than me. Like... Even as they're kind of causing each other's misery, you know, like a yeah. like a bickering dating couple of some sort that you know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, like father like son, right? Like he he took a lot of things from his father, obviously. No, really, it almost does seem like yeah, he he is very alike with Victor in that way. Um, okay, so that's the end of the novel here. Um, wow, what an interesting one! And I know the movie we're about to get to next week is going to be quite different than this. I have never seen the 1931 uh, version of Frankenstein, but I hear it is is perhaps the most famous version. Is that accurate to say? I think it's definitely the most famous version, yeah, yeah. and it's highly influential for horror films and, you know, film in general. 1931, Universal Pictures was making, like, you know, 
something that would go on to be Halloween costumes and the thing that people think about when they hear the Frankenstein, I think, a lot of times. Absolutely. And uh, we're excited to announce that Rachel is planning to join us again next week to cover the film. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. And I have not seen it. Um, Me either. I'm stoked. I think it should be a blast. No. <laughs> Should be a lot of fun. So if you enjoyed uh, listening to Rachel on this one, make sure to come back next week when we round it out. And we're going to force her to make a, a caster vote on which is the better version ultimately. And I will be doing that as well. And hopefully we can, we can I don't know, put this to rest. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> we'll we'll, we'll <laughs> cast our vote. die. Like, <laughs> Who's suffering is most. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, but this was so fun, Rachel. Thank you for, for joining us. Um, if people wanted to find your writing and to find you online, where can they look for you? Uh, yes, um, you can find me on Twitter at Rachel K. Jones. And uh, my website has the same name, rachelkjones.com. Um, yeah, I love, yeah, hit me up on Twitter. I'm very chatty there. And uh, my work my work is all listed on my website too. So you can find my complete bibliography and a lot of it's available for free online. And please check it out. Especially if you like horrifying or happy, like cadaver related stories. It's just, it's good times, you know. And if you're listening to this, then you must be a fan of that kind of writing, right? <laughs> I will make sure to link some of that in our show notes. I'll put some, whatever I can find of yours, I'm going to put in our bookshop link down below. So people can use that link to to purchase some of your writing. And I highly, highly recommend they do. Um, so thank you so much for joining us, Rachel. And uh, we'll talk to you again next week. Yeah, thanks for having me. So if you enjoyed this episode about Frankenstein, please let us know in the form of a rating and review or reach out to us on our social media accounts. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. All of those adding to film. We're also on TikTok now. Um, but yeah, that rating and review would be awesome to see. Help us get to 100 rating and reviews on Apple Podcasts in particular. That would be amazing. And if you wanted to support the podcast in another way, we do have a Patreon, patreon.com forward slash ink to film. And we have many different tiers, but for just $2 a month, you can get our bonus episodes, which we put out monthly. And they usually are adaptation adjacent. We've done some experimental stuff over there as well. And recently we just put out one on the original adaptation of The Handmaid's Tale, which was a 1990 film. Yeah, and, and uh, it felt like the right time to revisit that work with everything that's going on in America right now. Uh, but yes, please join us on Patreon. We'd love to have your financial support. All right, that's going to be it this week. Uh, we will be back next week with this iconic film where I'm going to get to learn a lot about film history, and you'll get to learn as well, hopefully. Uh, so do join us next week. Rachel will return. Um, she was great uh, on this episode, so I'm looking forward to talking with her again. And until next time, keep adapting. Thank you.